Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word in the many seasons of the church's life. My name is Tim Sensing, Professor of Homiletics, Graduate School of Theology here at ACU. In this episode, I'll discuss Galatians 3. And for those of you that are keeping track, this will be episode 5 and 6. Thank you for listening. Galatians 3, 1 through 25 are not found anywhere in the Revised Common Lectionary, and yet it is found during the season of Lent in year D, year D being that supplement to the Revised Common Lectionary proposed by Tim Slimmons. When you think about Galatians 3, 1 through 5, Paul is going to be making an argument from experience. Because you as Galatians, when you believed in Christ and you were saved, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you experienced the Holy Spirit, and you experienced it in in multiple ways. Because the gospel was effective in your life. And that's the better way to read chapter 3, verse 3, and chapter 3, verse 5. The effectiveness of the gospel. And this text then, in chapter 3, verse uh, 1 through 5, may be a launching pad to talk about some other passages about the Holy Spirit in Galatians. Uh, whether you want to talk about how we receive the Spirit by faith, uh, 3.2, 3.14, how the Spirit enables our divine adoption, 4 and 6. Spirit is the source of our future hope, 5 and 5. The Spirit provides the mode of our walk before God in the present, 5.16. And the Spirit provides a way of ethics, uh, that transforms the character of the community and how faith opposes the flesh and frees us from the law and produces to us a bountiful harvest of mixed fruit. And that's all 5, 16 through 23, uh, a longer text uh, speaking about the Holy Spirit. And you, and you may want to choose that longer text to have a larger conversation with the church about the Holy Spirit. Or you may use this text here in chapter 3, 1 through 5. Uh, either way, let's... Uh, Think about how Paul is using the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is something that the Galatians experienced. It was a real experience for them. And if people are coming along and trying to deny that they belong at table, that people are saying that, that the gospel, you need to add something in order for uh, your experience of the gospel to be real, the Galatians should be able to counter saying, no, we've had real experiences with God's Holy Spirit. And those real experiences mean something. And Paul is going to argue about the role of that Holy Spirit, how it functions in a way that then counters what the law and how the law at one time functioned for them. When you move to Galatians 3, 6 to 29, Paul moves from an argument from experience to an argument from Scripture. And this section of Galatians is oftentimes difficult to understand. Uh, this is a, a section of Scripture. I can understand why it might not be in the lectionary. It might be a better text to do in a Bible class than in a sermon. The missionaries seemingly were making an argument from Scripture too. The difficult section in Galatians 3 can be best understood if you understand the brackets 
the, the bookends. When you look at Galatians 3.6 and Galatians 3.29, uh, let me let me read those two verses to you, and you can just see how they're bracketed. In three six, just as Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. So you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And then you go over to three twenty nine, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Abraham is the same promise that the Gentile Christians receive. The promise that entitles Jews to be in the God's family is the same promise that entitles Gentiles entrance into God's family. So Paul begins in Galatians 3, 6-9 saying, God's original promise to Abraham included the Gentiles. Paul begins this 3, 6, and 7 noting that scripture says Abraham being justified by faith, Genesis 15, 6. And that is prior to Abraham's circumcision in Genesis 17. If you can imagine the, the Jewish missionaries are using Genesis 17 as their argument, and Paul comes along and says, yes, but there is a prior text. And that prior text is Genesis 15, 6. In fact, there's even another text that's even prior to that, and that is Genesis 12.3. And, and you can think about uh, how Paul is, is making this argument and saying, yes, that's true, but there are prior ways in which God worked with people, and the Gentiles are going to fall underneath those categories of how God works in the world. So when you look at the bracket of Genesis 3.6 and 3.29, it helps us to understand that, that all of these arguments that Paul is, is making is, is saying that, that what God did for the Jews, God's doing for the Gentiles. Yes, you Jews might look at these passages of scriptures, but don't forget there are other passages, and these other passages actually come prior. And in between these three brackets, Paul's going to answer three questions. Question one. What is the relationship between law and faith? If you look at Galatians 3, 10 through 14, he answers that question specifically. If, you identify, if your identity is derived from the works of the law, you're under the whole law, including the curses and the blessings. Now, if that's the team you want to play with, uh, you know, that's your baseball team, and you want to say, I'm on that baseball team, then you've got to play by all the rules of that baseball team. If you're going to be in the American League, you're going to have a designated hitter. But if you want to play by the other team, the, the team of faith, if you want to be playing by the National League rules, then you don't have a designated hitter. Your pitcher's going to have to hit. And so which team are you going to play on? It's okay to play on the team that's going to function by law. The Jews have been doing that for a long time. But the Gentiles are going to play by these rules. And these rules are the rules of faith. If your identity is derived from the works of the law, you're under the whole law, including all the things, the curses and the blessings. The law is not a curse for you, but the law includes curses. It applied to Israel as the whole, not in talking about individuals, this person and that person, Israel. So do not 
identify with the lurks of the law because you're playing on the wrong team, a team that was sent into exile. The team that played by those rules, God punished. And then Paul says, this other team is the team of faith. And if you want to understand how that works, read Habakkuk 2 and 4. And a passage that can be read in two different ways, and it's both and, not either or. The righteous will live by faith. Through faith, the righteous have life. And secondly, the righteous by faith will live. The righteous live faithfully. Live on that team. The way of faith, not the way of law. Question two, what is the relationship between law and promise? Galatians 3, 15 through 18 answers that question. The law is like any last will and testament. The key to the unity of Paul's argument here is seen in the connection again with 3.16 and 3.29, where Paul is going to talk about uh, Jesus being the offspring of Abraham, and that came by promise. And he uses this word seed or offspring as a collective noun to refer to, to Jesus and how Jesus is the recipient of this promise that was made to Abraham. And yet then he, in 329, expands that to include the Gentiles or to include all those that are in Christ. Promise, because it was made to Abraham, was fulfilled in Jesus, and therefore all those who have received that promise in Jesus are then receiving of the inheritance. And Paul continues by saying, and that promise was 430 years prior to the law, 317. Therefore, our inheritance comes through the promise that is prior to the law. So that same prior, this is prior to that argument works both for faith and now for promise. Question three, what's the role of the law within the God's design to bring justification only through Christ? And he answers that in Galatians 3, 19 to 25. In some ways, why the law? And there's many answers to that question, and me, people try to figure out different answers to that question uh, here in Galatians as well. And I do believe Romans answers the question a little bit differently. And you'll have commentaries that will try to answer what it means in Galatians by going to Romans. I think Romans is is answering it differently. Galatians says the law was added because of transgression. The law was added to restrain transgression transgressions, to pose a constraint on human sin. This reading points towards Paul's use of law as disciplinarian in chapter three, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. And what is a disciplinarian supposed to do? If the law is your disciplinarian, the law restrains. The law puts constraints upon. In lots of ways, it's like a barcode. And my, my colleague down the hallway, Richard Wright, uh, talked to me about uh, law function as a barcode. And so when you are acting in certain ways or thinking in certain ways and you pass the law over the, the barcode scan of that action or that attitude, is that righteous? Is it not righteous? And the law functions to tell us what is and what isn't. 
And, and therefore, if I am aware of and I know, because the barcode has told me so, that can put a restraint and that can put a, a, a way of, of, of controlling uh, sin and transgression in my life. Now, love functions that way. And we'll read more about that in chapter 5, how love functions as the barcode to let us know what is righteous and what is not righteous. In some ways, the Spirit will function in that way. Whenever the law's relationship with transgression was, it was temporary. The purpose of the law is not opposed to the promise because it had a different purpose. What was the purpose? Here it says to imprison all things under the power of sin. The law is a jailer to keep Israel in protective custody until the coming of Christ into the world. Now here's a translation issue. The law was not to lead us to Christ as the NIV translates. Now the NIV has a better translation in the footnote. Nothing in the text talking about a progressive movement from the time under the law to now being in Christ. Christ found us in a condition of being with a pedagogue, a disciplinarian, one who teaches, one who disciplines, one who trains. In that condition, Christ came. And therefore, the New Revised Standard Version has this as a better translation when it says, until Christ comes. Since Christ has come, we're no longer in the condition of being under the pedagogue. We are set free. Therefore, the purpose of the law is complete. It served its purpose. Now it's done. When we think about the most, one of the most famous passages in Galatians, chapter 3, 26 through 29, uh, it begins with this Greek word, uh, all. And, and the second word is for. And English would begin the sentence with for. But the emphasis is on all. All already are children is the emphasis. Nothing else is needed. All are the children of God. And, and that is going to, to shape this famous text as we look at it. All Gentiles are given the honorific name sons of God. Preach. Paul is asking the Galatians to remember their baptism, using the language of imagery of being in Christ and having a mystical union, being clothed in Christ and being transformation uh, of their identity. In Christ's language, and it's parallel to that homework text that we looked at in a previous episode of Galatians 2 and 20. Galatians 3.28 is probably an early baptismal formula and reflects the new creation that God has brought into being in this new age. Paul is using this common already and not yet language. He uses both the present tense and the future tense to talk about how we receive grace. What we already have fully is not yet fully realized. Paul's language calls forth eschatological patience. What God has established is still yet waiting fulfillment. And so the church is going to pursue God's creative order. 
Yes, there are political ramifications that call forth patience, but the church moves towards God's intended future. Pursuing God's creative order has practical implications because of our baptisms. The most obvious example is slavery. Our baptism has political ramifications and slowly humanity has moved towards God's intended future. Slavery was not overturned overnight in Paul's day. We're not there yet, for slavery still exists in the 21st century. The church calls all humanity to live into God's intended future now. Yet, humanity will not end into that future and fully until the eschaton. Paul is calling the Galatians to realize that they are no longer, they're no longer identity classifications of Jew and Gentile. It's always already a done deal when Jesus died on the cross. The Galatian churches experienced it, chapter 3, 1 through 5, when they received the Holy Spirit. But the missionaries were trying to take it away. The cross tore down those classifications for Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, and males and females. Paul says, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but he switches the conjunction to male and female. Male and female language echoes the language of Genesis 1.27. New creation is a move towards what creation always intended. While the distinction in the church for males and females were not overturned overnight, as you can see in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, the church still moves forward to realize what is already established. The church is a sign and a foretaste of the new creation. Therefore, these distinctions have lost their power to divide and oppress. Not that you are no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. You cannot change that. Likewise, you're still male and female, but now these identity markers no longer are the ground for status or exclusion. The point of Galatians 3, everyone is in the family of God, and that leads us directly, I think, to Galatians 4. We think about this text, I, I preached it one time with a, with a sermon title, Living Out Your Baptism. And I looked at Galatians 3, uh, 26, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, which is year C, proper 7. God in Jesus reconciles all people. And my, my intention for this sermon was to inspire the church to welcome others as Jesus welcomes us. I can remember she came to me after the sermon a few weeks back and she said, you don't always know what the little ones hear. They are listening. After your comment about white church buildings, my grandma's grandson said, Grandma, your house is white. They are listening. And it reminds me that one of the criticisms you can level in the real estate market is, all these houses are cookie cutter. We do not want something that looks just like what everyone else owns. We want something different. We want something with character. People have an inherent desire to be different. 
inherent desire to differentiate themselves from others. We enjoy our independence and exert our autonomy at every turn. We resist efforts to try to treat us as if we are all the same. Racial, economic, gender, education, religious, political, on and on it goes. We separate ourselves. Often our separation ends in prejudice, suspicion, hate, envy, and rivalry. It even happens at church. People want to separate themselves from others in the very place where we should be united. Our tendency to divide and distinguish ourselves has deep roots. Did it first happen in the garden? One of the primary consequences of the event of the garden is that sin broke the relationship between men and women. No longer is there a notion that we are both created in God's image, male and female. The realities of the patriarchal system where men have rule over women emerge from the story of fallen humanity. Furthermore, the table of nations in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 notes specifically how this group differs from that group. One nation lives here, another one there, and today we still separate ourselves into enclaves, pockets, and ghettos. When I was teaching in Ghana, I learned early how easily the Ghanaians and the Liber uh, Liberians and the Nigerians all knew how they differed. The prejudices that kept them separate ran deeper than just nationalism. It was ethnic. And as I continued to ask questions, I learned that even the tribal groups within a single nation had prejudices about other tribal groups. Certain dialects were causes for derision. While our God of heaven and earth is a God of diversity, our God is not a God of division. Christians celebrate diversity. Christians fall prey to division. And when I, when I saw that in Ghana, I recognized it in my own backyard here in America. Therefore, God intervenes. God called Abraham out from the nation in order to call a people who would be wholly devoted to being holy as I am holy. And through Moses, God liberates the people from Egyptian bondage so that they can be free to serve with their whole hearts. And the law was given to provide the structures and the boundaries for life and community. Paul speaks about the law. It served as a disciplinarian, a schoolmaster, a custodian to protect and guide God's people into their promised future. The very in Torah intended to free so that God's people would be the light to the Gentiles. But it often functioned just the opposite. Human sin perverted God's law. So God intervened again. The law was never meant to hinder us but it was a promise of God's grace. Those of us who are in Christ have graduated from the law's training. We now live as children of promise. Therefore, Jesus reconciles us all. Our union comes from our identity in Christ in baptism. We put on Christ in baptism. Our life before has now ended and a new life has begun. When we present our passports at the door, there are no additional membership requirements, no forms to fill out, and none of the other societal requirements of standing or identity. It's not the gospel bundled together with something else. 
our union with one another comes from our identity with Christ in baptism. You know, there's this not yet already tension of our reconciliation, and it's apparent. We're already reconciled together as one people, the church. Yet the evidence against that reconciliation is all around us. We're not yet a united people. I used to think that this was a good text to talk about how we are all one in the future in terms of salvation. I kept the theoretical and the practice separate. I kept the theological and the ethical separate. I now think the former way of thinking was just mental gymnastics to avoid making hard decisions. Galatians is about the ethical when it talks about food. It talks about circumcision. It talks about the holidays. It's talking about ethical things that separated Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul roots our identity in Christ and therefore rejects all kinds of ethnic and religious identity politics. Throughout history to this very day, there are movements within churches that seek to define our identity based upon race, national order, class, gender, and many other social practices. But Paul says, we're all one in Christ through baptism. As God intended in creation, being created in the image of God, so now we are recreated in Christ. Differences in hierarchies, discriminations, all resulted after creation because of sin. Differences in hierarchies and differentiations are all washed away because we are all now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, God reconciles us all. We are therefore now free to embrace our oneness by embracing one another. You know, there are lots of identifiers out there. The Marines have identifiers. Alumnus of a school have identifiers. Examples of folk who know their identities. Uh, They know it because they know the identifier. Our identifier as Christians is that we are all baptized into the same blood. What does it mean to live out our baptisms? We live in God's new creation. Paul holds forth this vision of community of faith in which all are one in Christ. Those who are justified are incorporated into Christ who, like garments, envelops us. Given the promised spirit, we receive the life that only God can give. And this is more than the justification of us as individuals. Righteousness leads us to the creation of us as God's people. All are children of God. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What a radical statement. This is not merely a matter of an isolated slogan. It is a central theme of the letter as a whole. Jews and Gentiles are no longer divided because of Christ's death has brought us together. All of us are children of God. We are therefore now free to embrace our oneness by embracing one another. We are now all children of God. We are now all co-heirs with Christ.
Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.